Hello, and welcome to Sound and Image Lab, the Dolby Institute podcast. This is a show about how artists use technology to tell their stories, and I'm your host, Glenn Kaiser. I got a chance recently to sit down with Lin-Manuel Miranda. I have wanted to talk to him for a really long time. We spoke about his new movie, Tick, Tick, Boom. It's a musical playing in Dolby Vision and Dolby Atmos on Netflix, and it marks Lin-Manuel Miranda's debut as a feature film director. So I was really excited to sit down and talk with him about this movie, which is fantastic. It's the story of Jonathan Larson, the writer and composer of the iconic Broadway musical Rent. We were joined in conversation by key members of Lin-Manuel's production team, production sound mixer Todd Maitland, and supervising sound editor and re-recording mixer Paul Hsu. We had a really great conversation, a lot of fun talking with uh, Lin-Manuel about why he chose this particular movie and story to make his debut as a director, the challenges of opening the story up and making it seem very cinematic, and live action singing versus pre-recorded singing, and why live action singing made things very challenging during the production from a COVID standpoint. So we had this conversation for an industry crowd, and it was hosted on Zoom by Netflix. And I'm really grateful to our friends there for giving us a recording of this to make available to you as a Dolby podcast. So let's listen to this uh, creative team talk about the remarkable work on Tick, Tick, Boom. So much to dive into and talk about. Uh, but before we uh, get into the, the process and focus on the sound, I want to just to ask a couple of, uh, of context questions. Lynn, for you, you know, obviously you're incredibly well known for your theater work and the film adaptations of, of, of Hamilton and this, in this summer in the Heights. So this is your feature film debut as a director. What was it about this particular show and Jonathan Larson that made you want to, that made you say, this is the movie that I want to sit in the director's chair for the first time. Um, well, first of all, so much of Jonathan Larson's work is, functions also as the origin story for, for my career and the way it was headed. Um, I, I loved being in the school play, but I never felt like I had permission to write a musical until I saw Rent for my 17th birthday, which was the most contemporary and diverse musical I'd ever seen. It was the light bulb moment of, oh, I'm allowed to make one of these. They're not just handed down on stone tablets from, from old white guys like this. It can take place now and it can be about the things you care about. And um, that was only further reinforced by seeing Tick, Tick, Boom my senior year in college. Now I'm a theater major. I've actually done the thing. And my parents have spent too much money for me to study this thing. And, um, and it was like a sneak preview of, of what my life would be um, and how hard uh, it is and how long the odds are. Um, but um, if you're in it for the right reasons, how rewarding uh, it is, if, if it's truly a calling. Um, but my first love was always film. And so, you know, I've, while Jonathan Larson steered me in the direction of, of musical theater, um, when Julie O, our producer, approached me with the film rights to the Tick, Tick, Boom, um, it was, it was, um, I've never seen a movie as clearly in my mind's eye uh, as I had Tick, Tick, Boom, because that story had taken root in me so many years earlier. Um, it was something I actively daydreamed about and uh, she had the vision to go get it. 
um, and go earn the trust of, of Julie Larson and the folks who, who run Jonathan Larson's uh, estate. And, um, and I'm just really grateful for, for the call because it was, it was something I felt, I felt ready to do. And then in the ways in which I didn't feel ready, I went and got myself ready <laughs> and, uh, you know, and also hired the folks who really know what they're doing, including the folks on this panel here. Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, the first 10 minutes of a movie is so critical, um, especially in a movie musical, because you're explaining to the audience kind of the rules of the world and how you're going to tell this story. Uh, and, and of course, the first 10 minutes of this movie is really dominated by the song 3090. Um, can you talk about that sequence and how you worked with uh, sound and, and the sound design and the music to, to put together kind of how you were going to tell this story and put the audience in this world, bam, right from the very beginning? thrilled we're talking about not just music but sound because there's lots of places those overlap and there's places where they super don't um and, and that was an imp and that was um a learning process i actually had even leading up to um to to my work on tick tick first of all todd baitland's reputation precedes him um i knew uh him a little bit socially because uh, he's good friends with my friend director alex horwitz um who met Todd when he was a Julie Taymor's assistant's assistant hey. <laughs> on Across the Universe. What can I do? When we were in our struggling 20s, my, my best friend Alex is a film, was an aspiring filmmaker and I was an aspiring theater maker. And, and he met Todd uh, on, on that and they stayed friendly. And so when I sat down with Todd to talk about Tick Tick, I think the first thing you said to me, Todd, was I've just come from Spielberg's West Side Story. I have a new rig. And I was like, awesome. <laughs> <laughs> and I did. <laughs> and um, and I knew that, you know, you know, Todd has been, been doing this a long time and I know that he is the best of the best uh, full stop. And, and, and Paul's reputation precedes him as well. But I also, um, I, I, I came to Paul saying, listen, I'm not in the pocket of Big Foley. Um, <laughs> so I call Foley Big Foley because um, there is always a tension on a musical between the practical sound that we know that makes film feel real and the heightened world we're trying to create in a piece of musical theater. And um, you always want to be in, in harmony. You want to take people on a journey to a heightened place. But if you remove all the naturalistic sound, then you are in some weird uncanny valley. Um, because John, more than myself, really believed um, and believes that, when, when, especially with that show, it's so much about the specific neighborhood. You need those neighborhood sounds. And he actually used the neighborhood sound as percussion to begin the song. And it was like a part of that. Um, and and I, I found myself sometimes as the ref between the sound effects of the street and the music and the arrangements and the orchestrations from the music team. I had those battles with me already uh, and as learned lessons going into Tick, Tick, Boom. And, um, and that was really exciting, actually. It was an exciting place to start from uh, in terms of when are we on earth and when do we take off into uh, the fantastic place that is Jonathan Larson's mind where anyone can break into song uh, if Jonathan's telling us a story. 
That's great. Paul, Todd, anything you guys want to say about uh, 3090 in that first few minutes of the film? Well, I was going to say, Lynn and I haven't talked about this, but he doesn't know that uh, that was, for me, that was the, the moment because I don't work with directors who are in the pocket of Big Foley. It's just, it's, there's no point. <laughs> it's got to be that, that, that balance is what it's about, right? It's like we're playing that game of the realism or not. What we say is what's real, but that's very subjective. And so that's really key. And I think 39 is a good example of that where you're in and out of so many environments. Like you're in a scene, now you're on stage. Now it's a full-on musical. Like, how do you balance that? And if you if you're not coming from the same aesthetic, you, it's it's a it's a struggle. And so that 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 part was pure joy, frankly. Yeah. I think from the first meeting that we had, Lynn, it was all about trying to keep this thing as real as possible, except for the moments, obviously, when we go off in fantasy and big fantasy, you know, dance numbers and that. But but that was one of the things that you said right from the get go is that you know we want to make this thing really sound like a real film, like not just musical that we've that we've all grown up with but something that really incorporates the environment incorporates everything that's going on around it which is exactly the way i feel about musicals everything i try to do is always about making it as absolute real as possible and we did a tremendous amount on this to capture the environments and and we even did a, a quite a few songs live and we used pieces of them here and there but certainly the one that we did at the at the uh, delacorte theater um where the playback piece was really emotionally not there when 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 uh, Andrew Garfield's playing at the piano there and it's and outside and we started to go with the playback piece and and at that point Andrew was in a very different place emotionally and he was much he was much further beyond what we had done in the in the vocal pre-records so it was a moment where we really had to go with this thing fully live and make it entirely work and it, and it worked brilliantly and that's that's the kind of thing that really you know gets me i i love that that's you can hear the central park wind all through that number because there was no choice but to, to meet Andrew where he was at uh, and, and sing that whole sequence live. Right. All right. I'm getting super excited about what you guys are talking about. This, this particular number, why I made a note of it. I wanted to, I had, I wanted to ask you questions about it because this kind of leads into, I'm really curious to, for you guys to talk about this, this notion of pre-recording the songs and lip syncing as you shoot versus live singing. Todd, you just let us know that uh, that a certain amount of the singing in the film is live on set on the day. And I, I'm stunned that you pivoted in the moment and you you had you, you say you had that that particular number at the Delacorte Theater at Y, which happens towards the end of the film. It's a very emotional uh, moment for uh, Andrew Garfield. He's just sitting at the piano doing a solo piano song. So you'd actually pre-recorded that, but then decided on the day to pivot and do it live. That's extraordinary. Yeah, it was it was so obvious to all of us to go live on that. You end up pre-recording everything for the movie. So when when you go in, you do all your vocal pre-records and things that I try to do to make that make the transitions work is we'll record like I'll pick a I'll pick a lavalier microphone. For instance, every actor sounds different with a different lavalier. So I'll take like Andrew Garfield, have him come in and before we did. Uh, pre-vocal recording and, and have him sing a piece where I'd have a boom microphone and I'd have six different lavaliers and I would pick <coughs> the microphone that matched best to him that matched best to the to the boom microphone and the boom microphone matches best to the vocal mic in the studio so this way I would go back later and listen and say okay when you do the vocal 
vocal pre-records with Andrew use this microphone. If I'm recording on a wireless on set and then all of a sudden you go into song and now you're on a big, beautiful, fat studio microphone in a beautiful environment, it takes you out of the movie. Right. So that was one of our goals always was to try to make this as natural of a transition throughout. So you really feel like you're there. I mean, there are certain songs that are obviously, you know, the big dance numbers and the ones that are just, you know, that are not real in that way. But we try to really keep almost everything real. That's amazing. Lynn, can you talk a little bit about what's what's the decision process behind going live versus using a pre-record in the film? Is it just environmental or what what yeah, leads into more that? More than anything, it's sort of conditions on the ground. Um, you know, the you pre-record everything because it's also just incredibly useful. You know, if we're, I'm doing previs you know, I want to have the sound of the actual actors while we're creating those previous sequences, which we did on some of the more elaborate sequences in this movie, like Sunday uh, and Swimming, um, where it was like, we, we, we got to have a game plan going into this. The other complicating factor for us also was, was COVID because, um, you know, shooting anything under, you know, pre-vaccine, you know, COVID 2020 is difficult. Shooting in musicals, harder. Um, we shoot saliva when we sing. Um, it's like the worst thing. Uh, so you, you know, anyone singing anytime, it, it became a thing of like, we had to really circle the moments where we were making a decision to sing live because we had special protocols we had to put in place for the crew's safety. You know, the camera's got to be a certain distance uh, from the actors now. The cameramen are going to wear face shields and like raincoats. Um, like it's, it was a whole other thing. In fact, I think one of the first days, once we started up in September, uh, you know, Andrew got an impulse and he sang live in the room and it wasn't one of my pre-approved moments. And I got a talking to at the end of the day. And I deserve that talking to because this is about our safety. <laughs> um, and so, it, you know, that that flexibility that we had at the Delacorte, which was shot, you know, in March, we didn't have that. Uh, once we got back in, into the room. I mean, Todd's such a pro that we were able to make anything possible, but we needed to, you know, Boho Days is, is a great example of like, you can't pre-record Boho Days. He's going to create this impromptu musical moment. Um, he's got to sing it live. And everyone in that apartment had, had to quarantine for 14 days to have the right to be in that room unmasked. Oh um, my gosh. So, wow. Um, they're the only people they've seen unmasked and all of us kept our, our masks on. It felt like the only party in the world going on, uh, the only safe party in the world uh, anyway, uh, for that day in November. Revolving door roommates, prick up your ears. 14 people in just four years. Anna, Max and Jonathan and Carolyn and Carrie. David, Tim, or Tim was just a guest. Ooh, in I remember Tim Barry, Margaret, Lisa, David, Susan, Stephen, Joe, and Sam. And Elsa, the bill collector's dream who still is on the lamb. Don't forget the neighbors, Michelle and Gay. Because we knew we were singing live, we knew you know, we need a two-week protocol. We need to make sure everybody on that place is safe because they're all going to be they're all going to get the right to sing live and sing together. And again, like it makes all the difference in the world and all my favorite musical numbers. I'm never thinking about live versus pre-recorded. I'm just being taken away. Right now I keep thinking about, uh, I got rhythm from an American in Paris. I still couldn't tell you whether those little kids are live and they're going, I got rhythm. I got music because it's such a deft mix. And, and you know, because they're tap dancing and there's, elaborate dancing happening during that number that it can't all be live 
and yet it feels spontaneous. Um, and so that's that's always that's always the the, the goal. Yeah, right. you were really up against it because you had we had COVID people literally monitoring. They wanted to wear headphones to make sure the actors weren't singing because normally when you have if you're doing lip syncing, you want the actors to really sing. You want them to look like they're singing. You want, you know, the spittle, you want everything. But the COVID police would be on top of us and they would say, I can't hear them. I, I don't want to hear them. If I hear them, we're going to have to stop and we're going to have to have them mouth it. So then they had to really learn how to mouth lyrics, which is very difficult to do without looking like a goldfish. And it was, it was thrown at you, you know, Lynn, you had to deal with that like, out the box when we came back. I mean, as yeah, soon as we came yeah, back was, from our, that, and we knew that was going to be one of our biggest challenges was, yeah. do you pull off a musical um, when singing? It's it is a dangerous act in 2020. Amazing. And then, of course, Paul, this all lands on you because you're you're doing the mix, so you've got to smoothly transition in and out of the live ports versus the pre-records, and talk a little bit about that. That must have been a huge challenge for you. Well, I was going to say, you know, continuing Todd's story, cut to, you know, whatever, nine, nine months later, it's me showing up to the ADR studio with four optional mics saying, well, what if we try this one? Because we, we try to match the thing that's in there, because the, the nature of that process is pure repetition, essentially, you know, where the number of takes recorded, you got the pre-records, then you got the live takes, then you got the additional ADR stuff. And then it's just, we just start cycling through it over and over and over again until we often go back to the live stuff. And that's where you know, someone like Todd is just, is, I can't say enough, like that, the quality of the, of the live recordings is essential because you want to go back that direction. Of course you replace stuff, you tune things a little bit better here or there, you, up, you know, you improve takes, but you want to rely on the emotion of those performances. And that's, that's really key. And there's a, you know, there's a small army of music editors and music department people working on that, getting everything as close as they can. But ultimately it comes down to, we play it for Lynn and does, do we get the thumbs up or the thumbs down? And usually we're going back towards the, the realest thing we can find. So. And I just stand there like this. <laughs> you never stand there like that. <laughs> never. You are, I have to say, you know, I've worked with a lot of first time directors and Lynn, you, the way you came in and took the set in your unobtrusive way, you took control of the set and all of these people who obviously we all just came together at that moment, you, without a doubt of first time directors, I, I would never have guessed that you were a first time director, obviously not you know, knowing it, but it was amazing what you did. Thank I you, give you tremendous you. credit. This does not, this does not look or feel like a movie that was directed by a first time director for sure. And sure. Lynn, you, you talked about like, you talked about for the first time you saw the play that you saw it so clearly in your head. And some of the some of this film is so cinematic. It's hard for me to actually imagine what the stage production looked like. And I'm thinking about you mentioned swimming, and and Sunday, both of which are completely cinematic uh, musical sequences. But Paul, one of my favorite sound design moments is in the lead-in, right up in the diner, right before Sunday. Balance. Brunch. 
and you're building all this layers and this tension through the sound design and then you almost like stop it right when the song starts and i just love that treatment can you talk about how you guys put that sequence together i think it's it's maybe my favorite sound moment in the whole, in the whole film yeah i mean first of all it's first of all it's in the script very very well laid out it's like clear as day in the script so those are the marching orders i think to you know from from the jump um and then the next thing is it's really you know the thing that people don't talk about a lot is the sound design process when you make a feature film is collaborative in the extreme it's like it starts with the picture editors with lynn in the cutting room working out the details then they send it to me i give them some stuff back i try some other things they bounce it back to me i send it to music they throw some things in they send it back to me it just it's endless like months of that going around and around and around and so it's the design is happening in tandem with all of us throwing in our ideas you know vetoing certain things doing you know whatever we think is appropriate until we come to sort of a consensus of this is going to work and then for me, the, the, as you pointed out, the, the, the point is really, the key point is really the silence. You know, it's like we, we spend so much time in the studio making big, loud, beautiful sounds, but it's about the silences, frankly. And that, and that you build up to that point where just before you go to the silence, you, you're going for the feeling of, you know, when you're standing on the platform waiting for the subway and it's so loud, you're like, should I put my hand, should I cover my ears or not? And you want to go right up to that edge where you're like, that was too loud and then gone. And you're in silence and that's, that's what we're going for, for sure. It was beautiful. I had to say Sunday when I first saw it, it was so beautiful the way that it came together because we had to film it. We were all in a bubble. We had all of the legends there. So we could only film a certain amount of them at a certain distance. And then they had to layer the whole thing back together again. And it worked impeccably. I mean, I would never, ever know that that's what we went through. Yeah, I had to keep everyone because we had different levels of quarantine because not everyone could commit to the 10 day quarantine and Joel Gray is not getting sick on my watch. Um, and so, you know, we, we had to keep everyone six feet apart and sort of tile a lot of those shots. Um, and then the sound came in slowly too, because then we, we didn't have an opportunity to get solos of the most legendary voices in the history of theater, Bernadette Peters and Joel Gray and Andre DeShield. Those are distinctive voices. We will know if it's not them singing. Uh, no one sounds like Cheetah Rivera except for Cheetah Rivera. Um, and so um, that was a really exciting part because we were in the sound mix. And I think it was Kurt who was like actually recording them individually. Yeah. And so it was like, today we got Joel. You want to hear Joel? <laughs> Exactly. We got Bernadette in the booth today. Do we want to hear Bernadette? And so those came in. And again, in a pre-COVID time, we would have literally put a mic on all of them and just recorded it on the day. But because we couldn't, um, everyone kind of got a debut <laughs> during the sound mix. It was like, today we have Howard McGillan and Chuck Cooper's vocals. Let's go. And we like isolated them. And it really became a party Like every time we got another one. No, that's the part of the process I think that isn't really talked about a lot. There's the re repetition thing, which is, you know, key, but then there's the love part of it. Like basically they were around the corner at, we were at Warner brothers uh, uptown and they were at avatar around like literally a block and a half away doing the vocals. And Lynn and I would watch Sunday basically every day. We would, we would just go to that reel and get the new vocal, put it in and watch that section again, because we loved it that much. And that, and I think that's actually the, the key ingredient is just like the, the pure endless repetitive love for the, for that thing, you know? And then, and then when Starobin's orchestration finally got recorded, you know, we hired Michael Starobin who orchestrated the original Sunday in the Park with George just to orchestrate that sequence. 
Um, so it's a whole, uh, and it's the only place we go truly orchestral, um, because for the most part, we're, we're, we're going with the conceit that the rock band you see at the beginning is scoring our film. Um, but for that one, we just go full galaxy brain. Like you need more instruments than you actually had at Sunday in the park with George, like, let's go. Um, so it, it, it was a lot to bring it home and, and it's just been so thrilling to see everyone respond, uh, the way they have. It's an amazing sequence. Uh, Paul, I just want to ask you uh, super briefly, Dolby Atmos, how did you utilize Atmos to make this as a kind of immersive as an experience as, as you possibly could? Yeah, I mean, it's really, it's not to get too into the technical weeds, it's really just about more channels, right? So get, you know, and that Sunday is a perfect example. If we had, I mean, I think there's, there's probably, I don't know, there's something over, definitely over a hundred vocal tracks in that song you know, not to mention the orchestration and it's, it's just a lot. So, so it's about spreading it around and really getting it as immersive as you can. But for me, the key thing is working with a director like Lynn, who, as you said, despite his first time, alleged first time, this is just rigorous. You've directed other movies. We just don't know. Um, but his his incredible rigorousness to the process and to the the fact that what's on screen and the words really matter. To, for me, that's the key thing is like, yeah, Atmos is amazing and sounds beautiful. And we have infinite channels almost. But what's on screen is what matters. And the moment where he looks at me and says, what is that? Too, no, too much. We've crossed the line. And that's that's so that's what it's about is like exploiting the technology, but keeping it keeping it real in terms of the, the artistry. That's what, that's, what's important. And Lynn, what was it like for you hearing that, hearing that final mix back for the first time for your movie being all completed in, in, in Atmos? It was so thrilling. We were so punchy by the end of it. I mean, the thing I'm in awe of for everyone in post-production is the patience, particularly Paul is, I, he goes to this other Zen place when he hears take after take to find the exact right thing, the exact, right level i mean we're just <laughs> just think we, we feel out of our minds by by the time it's over but it was it was so thrilling it, it also is um i have to say as a first-time director the part of the filmmaking process i was least familiar with was post-production i've been on a film set as an actor and i've been on a film set as a writer um but i didn't know what editing and post-production like i didn't know what i didn't know what I found um my delight was that post-production is a lot like building a score for a show. Like you're, you're creating tension and release and you're playing with dynamics and you're playing with when do we sit in a moment and when do we zoom past a moment? When do we explode? It's, it's the same questions I'm asking myself when I'm like literally at my piano writing, writing you a tune. Um, it's just different tools and they're Paul's tools and Todd's tools and, 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 and many other tools. And then, you know, separate uh, tools when I'm in an effects meeting. Um, but it's, it's the same thing in terms of how, how can I play with your heartstrings? Um, what are, what are the things I need to do to, to give you a satisfying evening? Um, and so um, it was, it was a joy to hear that, that final mix. And, um, and, and again, like it was, it, it was, it was, it was great. It was, it, it felt like I was um, sitting in tech in a theater and that's the highest compliment I could pay it. Cause that's my happiest place. <laughs> that's a, that's fantastic. So I'm, I, I, you know, I could talk about this for another two hours, but unfortunately I'm getting a message that uh, where our time is at an end and we have to wrap up. I do have one last question. Um, Stephen Sondheim is really on my mind these days. He passed away last week, obviously. And 
and with West Side Story coming out, and and Mr. Sondheim looms very large in Tick Tick Boom. Um, I understand there's a wonderful story about that very beautiful last voicemail message uh, that comes in for Jonathan Larson right when he's really at a low point in the film. Lynn, can you can you tell that story? Yeah, sure. Well, yeah. I mean, I, I I'm thrilled. Um that we honor both of Sondheim's gargantuan legacies. One, the work, which is immortal and will be dissected centuries from now. And two, the generation of artists he inspired and encouraged who have gone on to make incredible work. I am one of thousands of people uh, who he responded to uh, in his emails and in his letters. And um, um, I, I was in touch with him at every step of this journey because it's just as much a love letter to him as it is to Jonathan. And when I finally had the courage to screen the film for him, he said to me, you, you treated me, he had very nice things to say about the movie. And he said, you treated me gently and royally for which I am grateful. Um, I have one note um, and uh, it's that last voicemail. You have Steve saying something like, uh, I have a feeling you've got a very bright future. When I really say that, um, can I rewrite it? Uh, and I'll record my voice if you can't get the actor back. Um, I'm happy to do it. And so I said, I am, I am saying yes to this rewrite from Stephen Sondheim. Um, and, and, but I also said like, but it's got to fit in the cut. Like, you know, it, 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 you've got to read it over the cut that you have. And I sent him the, the footage so that it made sense in the time. And he, he rewrote his voicemail and he, and he sent it to me and you hear Stephen Sondheim's voice. And it's like one more gift from someone who gave us so many gifts um, and it's and and it's a gift of encouragement to not just Jonathan, but I think anyone who is, um, you know, deciding whether to double down on their passion or not. And um, I, I couldn't be more grateful for his generosity in a million ways. But uh, again, in like this this final moment in this film. That's a great yeah, story. Sure. I didn't know that. Yeah. And Paul was like, it doesn't sound like Bradley. Is it OK? I was like, it doesn't matter. <laughs> it's I also realized that like we don't actually hear Bradley talk for like a good hour and change so kind of get away it didn't it. even take me out of it that's that's what's interesting yeah. I remember it from when we shot it you know because we had the other voice right. so it didn't take me out of it at all totally works totally works and was make room for magic emotional. if it shows up <laughs> you just have to make room for it fantastic well, uh, Lin-Manuel, Todd, Paul, thank you so much for joining us today to talk about Tick, Tick, Boom. I love this movie. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to watch it several more times. And uh, it's, it's, it's a great achievement and a fantastic track. Congratulations to all of you. Thank you. Thank you. Great film. Well, it was a great pleasure. Great to see you guys. Good thank to you see go. you. Thanks once again to Lin-Manuel Miranda, Paul Shu, and Todd Maitland for joining us to talk about Tick, Tick, Boom, and to our friends at Netflix for hosting the conversation and making the recording available to us. If you haven't subscribed to us already, I hope you do. It's the Dolby Institute podcast. You can find links to our dedicated podcast feed in our show notes, or you can just search for Dolby wherever you get your podcasts. Sound and Image Lab is brought to you by the Dolby Institute. I'm your host, Glenn Kaiser. Our producer and editor is Michael Coleman. Our executive producers are Amanda Schneider and Jack Ferry with production support by Taylor Hines. And our production coordinator is Sonny Chen. Thank you for listening.